What does it matter how I live my life? What does it matter how I live my life? I don't know if you've ever been asked that question. Maybe you've been doing some walk-up conversations on campus in the last couple of weeks and people have responded in that way. What does it matter how I live my life? What do you care? Maybe that's a question that you have actually asked yourself, that you're pondering, that you're wrestling with yourself, even this weekend. What does it matter how I live my life? Why can't I just live the way that I want? It's none of your business anyway. If I'm not hurting anyone, and it doesn't really matter in the end, what do you care how I live? The pull to think like that uh, is strong in our culture, I think. Uh, Because what do you think is the number one value in Aussie culture? Here's here's what I think. Self-expression. Self-expression. I do, I believe, I am whatever I want to be. I make my own choices. I follow my own desires. Life is short, after all. And then in all of this, living a godly life is seen as a waste of time. At best, it's seen as a a good-for-you-maybe-but-waste-of-time kind of thing. At worst, it's seen as bad. And Christians are seen as the bad guys. Uh, In Steve McAlpine's new book, this is his new book here, been giving that a read the last couple of weeks, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. It's a really helpful book so far. He says that now Christianity is seen not only as wrong, but possibly dangerous. So I want you guys to talk to the person next to you for 30 seconds, and I'm going to set myself up a bit more up the front here as you do this. Uh, How does being perceived as a bad guy make you feel? Let me introduce a little bit more about myself. So I'm married to Zoe. We have three kids who really wanted to be here and to play with you guys this weekend, but they're down in Canberra. Uh, Eddie is six, Claire is four, and Johnny is one and a half. A little bit more about me. I love Steven Spielberg movies, and I particularly like a really good bad guy. I just love someone who I can actually care about as a bad guy and, and, uh, and all that kind of thing. I don't know if any particular famous bad guys come to mind, but Darth Vader is one of my favourites, one of the greatest characters ever created. Uh, but when it comes to, to being perceived as a bad guy, as a follower of Jesus, I wonder what, what discussions you guys had. Um, do you feel that pressure? Does it make you want to shrink back? You don't want trouble. You you don't want to stand out. You just want to blend in. Being rejected, being seen as a bad guy, can make godly living a pretty big turnoff. Is being godly, is living for Jesus worth it? Well, 2 Peter is a reality check. These are Peter's last words. He writes them to Christians, living in a world that sees them as wasting their time, sees them as the bad guys. And he gives them a reality check. And that's a reality check for us this weekend. Jesus is coming. We're called to live in the light of the end. And so remember, pay attention and make every effort. Remember Jesus was crucified for sin and these are the last days for this corrupt world. Pay attention. God is speaking in the Bible, even this morning. And make every effort to live a godly life. It will be worth it. We're going to explore this from 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me pray that God would help us to pay attention. Some of us have had more sleep than others. Let's all pay attention to what God is saying in his word. Please join me. Dear Lord, 
Please help us to pay attention to what you are saying in 2 Peter 1 this morning for our good and for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 That was a nice hearty amen. Thank you. Now, please have the Bible passage open in front of you. So it's not just me making it up. Let's start at verse 1. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Peter, he wrote this 2,000 years ago to Christians. But just in case we're not clear, what makes you a Christian? Are you a Christian just because you went to church all of your life? Are you a Christian just because you're at getaway this weekend? Are you a Christian just because you're a good person? Well, no, Peter tells us right here in these verses, straight up, this is what makes you a Christian. Verse 1, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So he's writing to people who have been saved by Jesus. So what makes you a Christian? God does. Christians are ordinary people who by God's effort, by God's righteousness, by God's grace, have been saved by God through Jesus. Let me tell you why that's important. This weekend we're going to talk a lot about godly living. Godly living is not what saves you though, friends. Godly living is for those who have been saved. Godly living is not payment for your sins. Godly living is for those whose sins have already been cleansed on the cross. Godly living is not 12 rules for being a good person. Godly living is for those who already know Jesus and know him as their saviour and Lord. So you might not be a Christian here this weekend. It's so good that you're here. Very So pumped that you're here this weekend. If you don't know Jesus yet, hear me loud and clear. You don't need to be told to be more godly. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. So don't bypass Jesus on the way to some rules about how to live better. If you've not put your trust in Jesus yet, won't you consider him this weekend? And you can chat to me about that, and I'm sure there's many here who would love to talk to you about that. But godly living is for Christians. And let's keep moving through these verses, because that's where Peter goes next. If you are a Christian, God has given us everything we need to live godly lives. See verse 3? His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Check that out, divine power. That sounds pretty exciting. Um, God gives us power, but what for? If my six-year-old son, Eddie, heard the word power, he'd be getting very excited. He'd be asking me about what superpower God gives him. Is it uh, invisibility? Is it super strength? Is it x-ray vision? Uh, But seriously, power for what? What's, What's God talking about here? Is it to be impressive? Is it to be influential? No, God gives us everything we need by his power for godly living, for a godly life. It's power for godliness. I don't really want to talk about this, but sadly, Christianity has been in the news lately for the abuse of power. Ravi Zacharias was a powerful man. He had powerful Ministry that he led for many years, he was famous, he was influential, he impacted millions, he might have impacted you. 
But sadly, it seems that he was not living a godly life. But God calls us to something better. It's not looking impressive. It's not having a super appealing personality with charisma and charm. No, for his glory, through his own goodness, God empowers us for godly living. And you know what? Godly living is the greatest privilege in the entire universe. What is it? Look at verse 4. Have a look at verse 4 here. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Whoa, I'm having a bit of a Keanu Reeves moment here. Um, Will you have a Keanu Reeves moment with me just for a second? See what this says, just pay attention to this. For God's glory and to his own pleasure, through the promises that he has made in the gospel of Jesus, we get to participate in the divine nature. Whoa. What does this mean, though? What does it mean? It means we get to be like God. We don't get superpowers like omniscience or omnipresence or something. Better, we get to resemble God. We get to participate in his character. We get to take on God's qualities. We get to live the lives that we were actually meant to live. We get to bear his image. I don't know if you guys remember the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 1. Let me remind you, in Genesis chapter 1, God made the world and he made us, and he made us in his image. We were these little mirrors. Now, when I look in the mirror in the morning these days, uh, I don't see anything particularly glorious, I have to say. I see an old man with bags under his eyes, more and more hair in his nostrils, uh, and new grey hairs. I found a new grey hair this morning. It's not particularly glorious what I see in the mirror, but in the mirror. But we were made to be mirrors of God's glory, reflecting a truly glorious God into His world. But what happened? Genesis chapter three: evil desire happened, and corruption happened. We rebelled against God. We sinned. That's what sin means, rebellion against God. We became corrupt, a consequence of sin. We corrupted his word. We corrupted our relationships. We corrupted this world. That's what happened. But in the gospel of Jesus, God's rescued us from that. See that in verse 4? We're rescued to participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Let me ask you guys, is Australian culture basically good? The culture you are swimming in at ANU, ACU, and yes, even at UC, is not good. This world was made beautiful, yes, but it's corrupt as corrupt as a rotten banana or an impeached president or the mafia. So don't be naive, guys. This world, the culture that we are swimming in, will try to convince you that it's fresh and appealing and alive. And here's how Steve McAlpine describes the culture that we're living in. He says, all of us are immersed in a highly effective discipleship program offered by our culture Monday through Saturday. In everything, from our phones to Netflix to advertising and news items, we're being offered a discipleship program that invites us to a completely different way of life, mediated to us through a dazzling array of images, sounds, stories and suggestions. That's the culture we're swimming in. It's appealing, 
But God reveals to us in his word this morning, it's corrupt. It's corrupt. In fact, these are the last days of this passing and corrupt world. And all corruption will be exposed and judged by Jesus. But more on that later this weekend. Jesus has rescued us from that. He's the perfect son of God. He's our saviour. And by his grace, he calls us to participate in the greatest project in the universe, greater than landing on Mars. It's the restoration of God's image in us. It's participating in the divine nature. Isn't that an incredible privilege? I think it is. But a question that pops into my head at this point, I don't know if it pops into your head, is isn't this just an impossible ideal? Can anyone live up to this? I stuff up. I'm not perfect. I know. It's it's not about perfection, but nor is it about giving up. And this is why Peter writes this letter. Did you know that God wants you to grow more like him? Did you know God wants you to grow more like him? In fact, he wants you to make every effort to grow more like him. And that's where he goes in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. You see what Peter's saying here? Okay, God's rescued you from this corrupt world. He understands you're still living in this world, but he wants you to resemble him for that reason. Make every effort. Get busy living godly. And this is what it looks like. It looks like goodness. It involves growing in your knowledge, not just knowing lots of stuff at uni, filling up your brain until it just explodes with awesome knowledge. Uh, No, knowing Jesus more deeply. Verse 8. It looks like self-control. Not just doing whatever you want. Not following the desires of this world around us. Self-controlled by grace, by the gospel. And perseverance, that means sticking with Jesus, asking him to help you every day through the ups and the downs, and in case you forget, godliness. But is it all about you? Is it just a self-improvement list? Well, no, it's all about others. And did you see that next? Peter says, mutual affection, moving towards other people in warmth, and above all, love. Not romantic feelings, but self-sacrificial love in action. Giving up what I want and putting you first. Guys, these are God's qualities. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. And this is who we are called to be like. Don't you think it would be good for our lives and good for our world, good for our uni campuses, if we made every effort to be like God? Wouldn't it bring so much glory to God? I'm definitely a work in progress. But I'll tell you what, I'm most joyful and God gets the most glory when I live his way. Guys, let's not just let this be words on a page. We can do it this weekend at Getaway. And I'm so encouraged by many of the ways that you are already doing that. Loving each other, putting others before yourself, showing affection for each other. But let me pause here and ask you another question. What are you making every effort to do with your life? What are you making every effort to do with your life? Are you making every effort to get top marks, no matter what you have to sacrifice to do that? 
Are you making every effort to get your dream career? Or to impress your friends or your parents? But what about godly living? Now really, is godly living your top priority? If you're a Christian, I believe Peter's saying here it should be. But why? What's the point? Peter tells us in verse 8. Have a look there with me. Verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Friends, two things here. Firstly, the negative. If you don't make every effort to live a godly life, you might waste your life. Hear it again. You might waste your life. You see verse 9? Living an ineffective and unproductive life is a waste of the cross. It's like you're blind, like you're me without my glasses on. I can't really see any of your faces at the moment. Don't be like that. Look to the cross. I'm going to keep going in a second, but I'm going to get you to talk to the person next to you for a second about FOMO. Let's talk, to, look, let's talk about FOMO. What do you think people most fear missing out on? I'm kind of curious to know what you guys talk about. A few people want to shout out. What's the experience of FOMO? Yeah, go for it. Uh huh. Yeah. So missing out on experiences that you've had in the past, wanting to re-experience them. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yep. Yep. Ideal experiences in life. Yep. Any other thoughts? Missing out on fun. Missing out on fun. Yes. One other suggestion. Yep. Thanks, thanks everyone for sharing. Uh, I wonder if this is a godly version of FOMO in this verse. I could be wrong. Come and challenge me about this if you like. We shouldn't worry about missing out on the perfect career. We shouldn't worry about missing out on the perfect partner or fun experiences or the perfect lifestyle. I wonder if we should worry about missing out on, an, on a godly life. I wonder. Let's put this in a more positive way. If you're a Christian, you have the secret in Jesus to an effective and productive life. A life of actual joy and contentment, even in suffering. A life that actually makes sense. A life that will actually last beyond these last days. The tragedy is that most people on this planet are wasting their lives. They're wasting their lives in pursuit of self-glory, self-importance, and self-pleasure. But we know Jesus, and we know better. If you don't know Jesus, will you please come to know him? But if godly living is effective, if it's productive, what's the goal? What's our finish line? Well, that's where Peter goes next. Let's keep moving through these verses. We're getting close to the end here. See verse 10 and 11? What's the goal? 
Peter says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. What's the goal of godly living? Well, Jesus saves you, your sins are cleansed, dealt with. Therefore, verse 10, confirm your calling and election and make every effort to do it. Now, at first glance, I get it. This looks a bit scary. It looks like it's saying that if you're not godly, God might cancel your salvation. But we are saved by grace, right? Well, yes, we are. Jesus is our saviour. Our sins are dealt with, cleansed on the cross once for all. That's the wonder of the gospel. So what does Peter mean then? Well, as much as I want to explain this verse away, and I've been wrestling with it even this week, we can't shy away from what he's saying here. How you live now, how you live today, how you live this weekend at Getaway echoes in eternity. Eternity is coming. But is that all that Peter says here? I don't think so. What does confirm your calling and election mean? Let me put it like this. Who needs confirmation? Does God need your confirmation? Well, no, I don't think he does, but we do. I think godly living confirms who you are to yourself. It reminds you who you are. It's what Paul calls growing up into Christ, being who you are in Ephesians chapter 4. Not so that you can be proud or self-righteous, not so you can spend all your time dwelling on yourself, but it's useful. John Calvin talks about something called subjective faith. See, the object of my faith is Jesus. I put my faith in him, and as I do, I, the subject, can see Jesus changing me, and that has useful value. It reassures you. I think that's how godly living can confirm your calling and election to yourself. God uses it to stop you stumbling, to stop you sinking back into the corruption of this world. Because there is another world coming. It's the eternal kingdom of Jesus. See it there in verse 11? You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. These are the last days of this corrupt world. Will anything last? Jesus' kingdom will last. We're going to be living under his loving rule forever, so make sure you end up on the right side of history. Be like him now. Live godly lives while you wait for his return, for you will receive a rich welcome into his never-ending kingdom. Not big bags of money. A better translation here would be, he will graciously welcome you. See, it's grace at the end, as it is at the start. And if you're a Christian, this is your future. So let me ask you another question. What is your future hope? Whatever it is, you will live now in light of it. This is a bit of a silly example, but over the summer, my family went down to Marimbula. It's a beautiful spot. Uh, In Marimbula, there's a jetty with an eight-meter jump. I'm not a huge fan of heights, but my kids wanted entertainment, so off I went. I had had to do the jump. Before I jumped, though, I wanted to know the future. I wanted to know whether my future held fun and safety and a a nice gentle splash or danger and injury on those sharp rocks that was hard to tell how deep down they were. I asked some locals, they reassured me that it was safe, other than the sharks that occasionally swim in the water. Um, 
I wanted to know how that plunge would end before I could make the jump. And obviously I'm here standing before you today. It was fine. In I went. See, my future hope shaped how I lived and I jumped. And in a much grander way, hope shapes how you live today. If your hope is only in living an impressive life in the eyes of this world, if this world is all that your hopes are pinned to, you will sacrifice time and money and energy to get whatever that is. God promises Jesus is coming. Is that your hope? If it is, you will live joyfully for him now because you know that it will last. But how can we be sure that it will be worth it? What are we basing our assurance on? Why not just live like the world around us? Is Jesus really coming back? How can I be sure about that? How can I be sure he's real? That he's really coming back? Well, that's where Peter goes next. So that in verses 12 to 15, Peter turns out he's about to die. He's about to meet Jesus again, but he's already sure. And in verse 16, he tells us why. He, he was an eyewitness of Jesus in all his glory. And as Peter and the others wrote the Bible, they were inspired by God. So we can be sure that godly living is worth it because it's all here in the Bible. Have a look at verse 16. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when this voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Guys, you can be sure that godly living is worth it because Peter saw Jesus in all his glory. What story does Peter choose to tell us here? He tells us about the transfiguration. You can read it for yourself in another book of the Bible, Mark chapter 9. Jesus took Peter up a mountain and showed Peter his glory. And Peter got a glimpse of the future. Peter knows that Jesus is real, that he's really glorious, and he wants you and I to know that too as we read this account in the Bible. What do you think the Bible is? If you're not a Christian, you might think it's an interesting book, maybe made-up stories but interesting, or or maybe a kind of a mystical book with mystical principles to puzzle out. But, But no, the Bible is eyewitness accounts of God's glory. The Bible was written by people who saw Jesus in the flesh and want you to know him. But the Bible is even more than that. It's not just eyewitness accounts. In the Bible, God speaks. See that in verse 19? Peter says this, and we'll finish with these verses here. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Pay attention, guys. Don't take the Bible for granted. When you read the Bible, you're not reading a made-up story. It doesn't belong on the shelf next to Harry Potter, gathering dust. It's reliable. It's a light shining in this dark world, and it's alive because God is speaking. See verse 21? Prophets, fancy word for the guys who wrote the Bible, did not speak their own words, didn't make this stuff up. 
They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that means when you read the Bible, God is speaking. And he promises that when that Jesus is coming back. He promises that. He promises you that living for Jesus will be worth it. So verse 19, pay attention. Now, I grew up in a Christian family, but I didn't start reading the Bible for myself probably until I was about 15. That was when I started paying attention, I reckon. That was when I really met Jesus. That was where I heard God speaking. That was when I started living for him. What about you? Are you a Bible reader? Are you paying attention? This is just the start of 2 Peter. Uh, Why don't you use the rest of this weekend to pay attention? Soak up God's word, because he has some very important things to say to us still in this letter. Things are actually going to take a pretty dark turn later this morning. But we really need to hear what God has to say. We really need to hear it. So let's pay attention as Stephen and then Kevin continue to take us through the rest of this letter this weekend. But let me sum up and finish by asking again, what does it matter how I live my life? Well, it matters more than anything. The world might think that you're one of the bad guys, but if you know Jesus, you know better. Godly living is the greatest privilege in the universe. Why would you pass that up? And godly living is the antidote to a wasted life. Please don't waste your life. Let's make every effort to live godly lives to God's glory. And godly living will reassure you we are saved by grace and we are called to live in light of that grace. And that's good for us. And so let's be obsessed Bible readers. Let's be obsessed with reading the Bible. That's where we can read God's promises. That's how we can grow more like him. So let's pay attention. We're going to keep doing that this weekend. For now, let me pray. And please join me in that. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your word this morning. And the reality check it has been that we can trust your word. uh, That you call us to something better through Jesus, our Lord and our Saviour. I pray for each person in this room that they would know Jesus, that their trust would be in him. I pray for each person in this room who does trust in Jesus, that making every effort to live a godly life would be their top priority for our good and for your great glory, Lord, because we we want to see you glorified in your world and in our lives. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.